Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show 14, if I remember correctly, unless Bob corrects me on that. Uh, anyway, what we're going to be doing today is continuing on with the topic we were discussing last time, which is financial instruments. What I want to do today is I want to take a few minutes before we get started and go into the new material to just discuss a little bit or reinforce the material that we talked about the last time during our show 13 broadcast. And then near the end of the show, what I'm going to be doing is going out to the uh, CalVet or California Veterans uh, CalVet website where uh, people that are veterans and are eligible can get loans through the state through what we call a CalVet program. And the reason why I want to do this is because one of the things that it talks about as far as a security instrument in this chapter is something called a contract, uh, sometimes referred to as a land contract, a uh, contract for sale. It has a number of different names, but I wanted to actually show you where you as a real estate professional or as a purchaser of property may very well be involved in one of these contracts. So we'll be spending a little bit of time talking about what that contract is about, and then I actually want to take you there and show you where uh, it's actually listed under what we call frequently asked questions, where it explains how they utilize that particular financial instrument. Now, what I'm going to do, as I mentioned before, I'll be back and forth between the document camera and my old friendly plasma screen here for the students in the class. And I'm just going to start as a quick review, maybe take about five minutes and just talk about what we discussed the last time. Again, I'll be showing you some stuff on the camera, coming back on, uh, coming back up and talking about it a little bit, and we'll be going back and forth. So anyway, the first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about or re reference back to what we call the promissory note. And I want to make sure that I read and make sure you get this. This is a very critical part of all of real estate, this is one of the core things for real estate financing for you as a real estate professional to understand this stuff. It's really, really critical. But anyway, it says a promissory note is a written promise to pay money. The one promising to pay the money is called the maker, that would be you, uh, of the note. Uh, usually the maker is the home buyer. The one promised payment is called the payee, that would be the bank. Usually the payee is either a lender if, if the purchaser has borrowed the money from the bank or the lender or a lender to buy the property. Or it could possibly be the seller. If the seller carries back a loan, their equity in the form of a, of a note and deed of trust, then that could actually, they could be the one that's uh, going to be the payee. If the seller is financing the transaction in whole or part by taking back a promissory note and a mortgage or a deed of trust. So what we really want to emphasize here, or what the, what the book is trying to emphasize, is to make you realize that there's one of the instruments that's core to making a loan is called a note. And that note, as I've mentioned before, is something that is not recorded at the county recorder's office. It's nothing that is public information. It is something that, if, for the lack of a better word, only you and the lender is at, are actually seeing this note. And so what we want to do is talk a little bit about what has to be in the note for it to be in effect. A lot of times these notes can be fairly short in, in nature because, in reality, the note only can't takes care of a certain part of your agreement with the lender. You also have the security device, and that's the deed of trust or the mortgage, which we'll talk about in a minute. So in order for a note, a promissory note, to be, if you will, correct or uh, be legal, it has to have certain things in it. So in other words, the names of the parties. So you have to have who's borrowing the money. If it's multiple people borrowing, like a husband and wife, their names have to be listed there. 
who's lending the money, that has to be listed there. So it could be like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever. All the parties have to be listed. The amount of the debt, how much are you borrowing? 200000 300 how much money is being borrowed? How and when the money will be paid? In other words, are you paying it monthly, semi-annually, annually? Who's it going to be paid to? Where is it going to be paid? So on and so forth. That needs to be listed. Whether there's an acceleration clause, which we'll talk about in more detail, but remember that when you get a loan, the lender is looking at you personally to make the loan. So they're checking your credit, your credit history, your credit background, and what the lender is really doing is saying, you know what, this loan, although the property is security for the loan, I'm looking at you. And I just don't want you to get the loan and turn around and sell it to somebody else and let somebody else start making payments and maybe they don't pay me on time and the next thing you know I'm finding out that I'm in default or they're in default. So what I want to do is I want to have the opportunity to have, to look at that and if I decide, me, the lender, to call the loan all and do and payable when you sell it, I want to have that ability to do that. I want to have that option. So, and that's called an acceleration clause. Then you need to have the pays remedies if the money is not properly pay, repaid at the time. In other words, how what's going to happen, you know, if you don't pay the loan on time? You know, what are the late fees, uh, so on and so forth. And then finally, the signature of the maker. So you really kind of want to um, keep that in mind that that note needs to have all of that information on there. Now, again, as a real estate professional. You're going to be out there, you're going to be dealing with or making loans, or your clients are going to be getting loans from all different types of sources. In some cases, these notes will look different. They will have different requirements, for example, depending upon whether it's an adjustable rate mortgage or it's an interest-only mortgage. Uh, there can be a lot of different clauses that are in that note, so we're showing you something that's very general in nature. I would highly recommend that if you're going to be in the real estate business, that before your clients ever, ever, ever show up at the escrow office, that you spend at least some time with the escrow officer and looking at these documents so that you'll understand what the client is actually signing. And after you do this for a while, you'll develop a feel for what's included in these notes and what you should be looking for. Uh, the other thing they talk about down here is they say that notes are negotiable instruments. Uh, I'll just read the statement and explain a little bit. It says, negotiable instruments are promissory notes that are freely transferable. Freely transferable means the bank or other creditor can sell the note and obtain immediate cash. Essentially, we've talked a lot about this that, you know, there are a lot, you know, the original person that the consumer, the customer, the home buyer, you know, the borrower of the money sits down with is sometimes referred to as an originator. You know, they're the person that's going to help the consumer get the loan. You know, so if you go to the bank or you go to a mortgage company like Viatech or like Countrywide Funding, the person that's sitting on the other side of the desk, they and their company are helping the consumer get the loan. They're helping them qualify the, for the loan. Uh, they're doing all the credit background check. They may be collecting the associated documents such as income tax statements. They're making sure that everything is co uh, collected correctly so that that loan if you remember correctly, can be sold. So that's why we talked about that they're doing things like they're doing it to a standard. That's why we have, you know, for example, the loan application as a Fannie Mae uh, Form 1003, why the appraisals that we get done are to a certain standard so we can sell the loan. When we talk about sell the loan, what we mean is that we can take that note, and when we talk about 
negotiable, meaning that we can take that note and sell it to somebody else. And when we sell it to that person, they turn around and give us cash back. So it's very, very important that you realize that, you know, that these, that's what we mean by negotiable, meaning turn it in and get some money back. Uh, in fact, last week we had a uh, gentleman come into our internship class by the name of Bill Watson from Money Brokers. They deal a lot in the purchase of second loans that people may actually get. They're commonly referred to as hard money lenders. And essentially, as he was telling the internship class, what happens is, is people, the seller may take back a loan and turns around and maybe a year or two later needs some money and they turn around and they sell it, sell it to an investor. And he happens to be the person or his company is the one that actually finds people that want to turn around and sell their loans and finds people that want to buy them. Okay, that's what he brokers. But again, a negotiable means I can turn it in and get some money back. Anyway, moving on from there, uh, I think what we did is I did talk a little bit in, in that, uh, in that uh, discussion about an example of a note, uh, and I went through all the various terms of the note, and again, you can't really see this because in full detail because I'm not able to really blow it up and, uh, very well on the computer. It's a lot of tiny little writing. <laughs> So, in fact, that's for some reasons why you maybe need to sit down and look at these ahead of time. But I covered all the different clauses that were in the note the last time. So that's in show 13. And so let me see. I want to now move on to um, talk a little bit about the thing called a deed of trust. Now, what we discussed the last time is we said, you know, you have this thing called a note. That note is not something that is seen by anybody except the maker, who's the person that makes the loan or the, the, the borrower, and the payee, the person that receives it. So in other words, between you and Bank of America, you're the only two entities, if you will, that see this particular note. Now, in order to secure that note, we have two different types of instruments we can use. And we talked about the last time, we talked about the deed of trust. There's two different ways we can do it. One is called a mortgage, and one is called a deed of trust. In California, we use deeds of trust, almost exclusively use deeds of trust. There's a possibility that you may run into a mortgage. It's just so that you have uh, information available to you. There are certain states where they use more mortgages and don't use deeds of trust. Uh, the concept here is for you to understand both of them and what they basically do. Now, under a deed of trust, that's a three-party instrument. We talked about that the last time. The three parties are the trustor. That's the person that borrows the money. The trustee, that's the person that holds title while the loan is being paid on. And the beneficiary, that's the lender. And so the whole idea here under a deed of trust is that we have, if you will, the way I kind of look at it, like an automatic procedure or automatic process. In reality, what is what it is is it's a law that in the event that the person that has borrowed the money does not make payments, it's a law that once you follow the steps in the law, it'll take you all the way through filing and letting the people know that they're behind in their monthly payments to finally selling the property at a foreclosure sale. We call that a statutory procedure because it's a law. We don't go to court. We don't have to get an attorney. We don't do any of that stuff. We just have the trustee. We say to the trustee, excuse me, Mr. Jones, who's, who borrowed the money on this property, has not been making the monthly payments, and therefore I want you to go ahead and start the foreclosure procedure. And they just go basically step by step, 
and follow all the rules until the property is finally sold. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what this happens to be and the advantages and disadvantages in each before we move on to the mortgage. So as they talk about here, let me see if I can get this uh, kind of zoomed in here. They say that the deed of trust or trust deed, and we refer to these in both ways. Why we do, why we say deed of trust and trust deed, or we, why you hear some people calling it one, some people calling it the other, I don't know, but either name applies. It's commonly used security device. It is a three-party device. The borrower is called the grantor or the trustor. The lender is called the beneficiary, and there is an independent third party called the trustee. Uh, the trust deed was originally designed to convey naked title, legal title with no rights of possession to the trustee throughout the period of indebtedness. <clears throat> One of the things that you'll always hear about when we're talking about security instruments is who has legal title and who has the right to live in the property. So, for example, when I get ready to borrow money, I am actually turning around and granting bare, what we call bare naked title to the trustee. What that essentially means is that the trustee owns the property or has the rights to the property. But I, as the person that's living in there, I still retain the right to live in it, enjoy it, use it, or whatever. Okay? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about that granting of that title. That gives the trustee the ability, if necessary, to turn around and sell the property if you don't make your monthly payments. Okay, At the end of the period of time when the loan is finally paid off, there's a document called a deed of reconveyance that is then recorded that essentially says to the world that deed of trust that was recorded maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago is no longer any good anymore because the owner of the property paid the loan off and now has full title to the property. Okay. So anyway, that's what that means. For, for to be a valid deed of trust, uh, it has to have certain things present. To be valid, a deed of trust must contain provisions. These include a statement pledging the property as collateral for the debt. So you have to have a granting clause in the deed of trust. Number two, a complete and unambiguous property description. In other words, a legal description. So that it can't be confused with another piece of property, it has to be a full legal description. Again, that could be a lot block, a meets and bounds, or a government survey. Three, you have to have the amount of the debt. How much money is actually being borrowed? Okay. The fourth thing that you have to have is what we call the maturity date of the debt. Maturity date of the debt. When is it finally going to be if you will, let me see if I can zoom this back out again. Maturity of the debt means that it's going to be, when is it finally going to be all due and payable or be paid off? For example, if I get a loan and it's going to, and the due date or the payoff period is 30, uh, 10 years from today, then it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, we're in 2006 right now, so it would be in uh, 2016. That's when the debt would be paid. Okay, a defeasible clause stating that the trustee will be canceled when the debt is paid, meaning the fact that, you know, that that's that's stating, hey, when you pay this off, we're going to go ahead and cancel that deed of trust. It'll be no, so that the owner that's pledging the property knows, hey, you know, after I pay it off, I'm going to get my property back again. And then finally, something called the power of sale. Okay, a power for the trustee, if you will, to sell the property in the event of uh, 
in the event of a non-payment or for some other violation of the, of the note and deed of trust. Um, it goes down from here, and it just says, most lenders use the standard F Fannie Mae Freddie Mac trust deed form so that the loan will easily be sellable on the uh, to other agencies. I emphasized that the last time that we set standards, and we want to make absolutely sure that we are following those standards, or that what will end up happening is Fannie Mae Freddie Mac won't buy the loan. In fact, you are seeing today, you're seeing where the federal government has become much more powerful in, 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 the, in the laws and in the implementation of loans. Because why? Because they're working with the secondary market. In other words, it's the secondary market is the one that's forcing these standards. Okay. Uh, if Fannie Mae Freddie Mac had to carefully inspect, it just goes on to say, which is common sense. If they had to look at every, every single person's different type of deed of trust, they, they'd never get through it. I mean, because it's like anything else. It's like, in my opinion, it's kind of like the old vanilla chocolate and strawberry ice cream. If you give people a choice, they'll make it. And while that sounds very nice and it's customizable, on the other hand, it makes it difficult to enforce because now you've got to have certain people putting provisions in one document that are not located in another one. But if we standardize it, then those provisions are the same across all the documents. That's why it's important. Uh, then it talks about uh, foreclosure down here. It says a deed of trust allows a beneficiary, who's the lender, to foreclose the lien without the burden of bringing a legal action. Uh, this is called a non-judicial foreclosure. That is a foreclosure without having to go to court. Okay, that's very important. The whole idea of the deed of trust is that when you look at the language on how that foreclosure procedure operates, Essentially, there's a time schedule. There's a certain number of days that have to go by. And once all of that process has been taken place, the foreclosure happens, the property is sold, and, the, and, and that's the end. So the advantage of the deed of trust is the fact that you're not going to a judge. You're not going to court. You're not saying, excuse me, I would like to sell the property. You have to deal with the court completely being backed up because they don't have enough judges. Okay. The other thing too is, is under a mortgage, you have what they have. A sheriff is the one that takes, you know, goes in and takes the property. You may not have enough sheriffs to do that. Here, it's a clean cut thing. Typically, in a lot of cases, it may very well be the title insurance company that does this. They have a department that takes care of this on a regular basis. The people are trained. They know what to do. They charge their fees, which are usually fairly nominal. They're well stated, well documented, published fees, so you know what's involved. And it's a very clear, clean-cut procedure, okay? Very, very clean-cut procedure. A couple things under a deed of trust, and this gives you an example of, as I mentioned before, what a deed of trust looks like. We spent the last time going through this. Uh, this, by the way, there are two types of deeds of trust that you will run into. Uh, one is called the long form, and the other is called the short form. The short form is, what that is, is it's a, it's a document that only has a few pages to it. And, but within the context, within the central part of the document here, would typically be listed all of the counties where the long form deed of trust is, is located. And the reason why you have the why why you have the short form, it's kind of like if you look at some of these deeds of trust, they go on and on and on with a lot of pages. And if you think about it, if you have to record this huge document every single time you sell a piece of pro or you lend some money on a piece of property, you'd have no space left. 
So what they essentially do is whoever is the trustee files what's called a long-form deed of trust, puts down where, what book and page it's located at in, a, in each one of the counties so that you can always go back and reference that and find out what that long form said. Okay, but typically we use a short form deed of trust. And again, they show down the bottom here, I believe, if I can blow this up down the bottom, uh, they show you the form numbers. And by the way, these form numbers, I'm going to kind of blow this up a little bit. It says this is a California single family Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac uniform instrument, and it gives you the number of the form. The form number is uh, 3005 as of December 1983. I believe that form is more current and there's more current forms than that, but that just down the bottom of every one of those forms will give you the current, you know, what, what form they're talking about. So you can always go look it up. Okay. Uh, we did talk a, uh, quite a bit about the trustee sale. Uh, I think what's important is for you to uh, just understand the process. And there's a lot of, uh, this thing just basically follows a timeline. And basically what happens is, is that, you know, as I've mentioned before, whether it's a mortgage or a deed of trust, what's ended up happening is that the lender is going to take this action because you have not been making payments. Uh, they could, by the way, as the book states, they could, you know, if you've missed a month, a month, one of your month payments, like if you didn't make a payment for one month, they could foreclose because you're violating the agreement. But again, lenders don't really want the property back because they're not set up to take the property back. You know, if you don't believe me, go to the bank sometime and walk into the bank and say, uh, by the way, can you tell me where the uh, pool maintenance department is or the lawn care department? They don't have those departments. <laughs> What they end up doing is if they take that property back, they have to turn around and hire a real estate broker to sell it. In a lot of cases, uh, they have to hire companies to maintain the property. Uh, if it's sitting on the market and there's not people living in it, it's open to vandalism. So it can end up being a nightmare. The banker really doesn't want the property back if they can possibly not have to do it. They're not set up to really take it back. Uh, sometimes if you really have periods of time when the, inf when the interest rates are extremely high and you, a lot of f you have a lot of foreclosures, you may end up having a department that's created, you know, and uh, it may exist for a while, but their hopes are is that they'll not be in that situation for a long period of time. They're not really making any money on this thing. They don't really want to do it. But anyway, usually the lender is going to go ahead and try to negotiate with you, try to help you out. Maybe, you know, it might be possible that they may... Once you tell them what's going on, they may be able to postpone some payments. They may be able to renegotiate a loan, but that's lender by lender. You have to find out what the situation is. But this really lists what they're going to be doing. Uh, let me see if I can zoom this back down a little bit. The first step that happens after the lender has realized that you're not going to make the payments is they're going to do something called the, the, the beneficiary, the lender prepares a document called the Declaration of Default. Okay, They send that to the trustee. The trustee then prepares a notice of default and an election to sell, and that's sent to the borrower. Okay? The trustee also notifies anyone who has subsequent recorded uh, notice of default. I talked about that the last time. So, for example, the person that holds the second deed of trust would turn around and probably have requested to be notified in the event that the first was in default. Because what they didn't want to have happen is, is to have the first foreclose 
and there's not enough money left for them to turn around and, and take the pro, you know, in other words, it could wipe out their loan altogether. So they want to be notified. Um, after that, it just basically says that the borrower can prevent the sale of the property by reinstating a loan. Reinstating means that you're going to go ahead and take all the back payments. You're going to pay any interest or costs that the lender's incurred, that the trustee is charged. Okay. If the loan's not reinstated within three months, the notice of default, the trustee publishes a notice of sale of the property in the newspaper general circulation. Uh, in Sacramento, I think one of the papers is called the Daily Recorder, which you can get at most of the, the higher-end bookstores like Barnes & Noble or Tower of Books, specifically, not Tower of Books, I'm sorry, Barnes & Noble or um, uh, Borders Books. You can find that paper or go online, you can find it. But they publish that. And um, that, it's go- that the property is going to be sold. Okay, a notice must appear weekly uh, that the sale and the sale cannot take place until 20 days have gone by, have elapsed. Um, and also, uh, by the way, the property has to be posted. You have to put a posting on the property. You have to put a sign out there on the, you know, like that's obvious that the owner. So the whole idea behind that is, is you know what? If if the owner didn't receive the mail didn't get the phone calls, didn't do everything. It's just a place where you let everybody know this is your final chance. And then what happens is then after that, after that period has gone by, then the property is sold at a public auction, if you will. Okay, sometimes they're sold at the courthouse downtown in Sacramento. Sometimes they're sold at the trustee's office, but they'll say where the trust, where the sale is going to take place. Okay. Um, as a result of that, the person that purchases the property receives a trustee's deed, which eliminates all the liens junior to the trustee being foreclosed. And any interest the debtor has in the property, uh, meaning, you know, in other words, any interest that you, the borrower, has, and the trustee applies the sale proceeds in the following order. What they basically do is the first thing is they pay the trustee's costs. So the person doing the trustee, in other words, the title company, wants to get paid first. You know, it's kind of like, I'm not going to finish this job up unless you pay me for what I've been doing. The second person that's going to get paid is going to be the, the loan that's doing the foreclosure. They're going to get paid. Then after that, any junior lien holders in the order of priority. So in other words, <clears throat> whoever recorded a second will get paid. Then if anything's left over, the third will get paid, so on and so forth. And then finally, any money that's left over is, is given back to the person that originally borrowed the money. Um, one thing I do want to mention in here is something called the deficiency judgment. I think I spoke about this the last time. A deficiency judgment in its most simplest form means that when they sell the property, there is not enough money as a result of that sale to pay off the trustee and, and the loan that's being, uh, the loan that's being foreclosed. So as an example, if you had a loan for $100,000, but the property only sold for $80,000, that would be a deficiency, okay? Now, in California, in California, if you have a sale of the property and the property is being foreclosed on and the loan that's being foreclosed on is for the purchase of a one to four four unit property, in other words, a single home, a duplex, triplex, a fourplex, but where the owner's going to live in there, and, you're, and, and the purpose of the loan was to buy that property, then the lender cannot get a deficiency judgment. They cannot. 
essentially what ends up happening is, is the lender just has to take whatever they receive. California law prevents that from happening. Okay? So you, you really want to know the advantages of, of how that basically works. Now, the other kind of instrument that we have is something called a mortgage. And again, I've mentioned this so many times, I more or less sound, feel like I sound like a broken record. But, you know, we talk about we're going to get a mortgage. We are going to go to the mortgage company. We're going to pay off the mortgage. We use the word mortgage, mortgage, mortgage. That's from the olden days. In reality, what we have in California are notes and deeds of trust, not mortgages. Okay, but we still use it. I mean, there's a Viatech mortgage company, you know, uh, so, so we're still using that term mortgage. But a mortgage is a two-party instrument. It's not a three-party instrument. And so what I wanted to do is mention what that is. As it says right here, it's a, it's a two-party instrument. A mortgage, mortgage is a two-party instrument, which the borrower is called the mortgagor. Okay? The, mortgage ha, uh, the mortgage, uh, mortgagor mortgages his or her property to the lender, and is, the lender is called the mortgagee. So you only have to, you don't have a three-party thing, you have a two-party. Mortgager is the person borrowing the money, mortgagee is the person that's lending it. So mortgagor would be somebody like Pat Hogarty, mortgagee would be Bank of America. That's what we're talking about. Now, in foreclosure, foreclosure works differently in, with a mortgage. We don't have this independent third party called a trustee. They're not part of this document. What we do is we have, what we have to do is if we're going to foreclose, we have to go through judicial foreclosure. Judicial means, put a J in there, means we're going to go see a judge. And so we're going to have to go to the judge and say to the judge, you know, all Pat hasn't been making his payments and I want to foreclose the property. Okay? Now, as you know as well as I do, when we're talking about going to court, we're talking about something that takes quite a bit of time. And there's a lot of different things that can delay the foreclosure process. So, uh, so what ends up happening is that, you know, as, as a result of that foreclosure action, uh, in fact, let me just go through this and make sure that it's uh, pretty clear. It says a foreclosure under a mortgage requires a court-ordered sale conducted by a sheriff or other court-appointed uh, court official. This type of foreclosure process is called judicial. In the event of a default, the mortgagee, Okay, who's the person that lent the money, accelerates the due date on the debt, the loan, to the present and notifies the defaulting debtor to pay off their entire outstanding balance all at once. So in other words, all that really means is that if you don't make your monthly payments and they've tried everything else, the lender is going to go ahead and notify you, listen, I want you to pay me off completely right now. I want to pay it off totally right now. If the debtor fails to do so, the mortgagee initiates a lawsuit called a foreclosure action. Notice they use the word lawsuit, which we didn't have in a trustee sale. In the county where the land is located, it could be land, house, condo, it doesn't make any difference. Okay. The purpose of this legal proceeding is to get the judge to order the county sheriff to seize and sell the property. That's what we're doing. The judge's order is called an order of execution. Now, that, that doesn't mean they're going to chop your head off, by the way. Uh, acting under the order of execution, the sheriff notifies the public of the place and the date of the sale. This requires posting notices in the property and the courthouse and running an advertisement of the sale in the newspaper circulated in the county. The process takes several 
weeks, okay? It could take weeks. It could take months. The other thing, too, is that the problem with the reason why we favor deeds of trust versus mortgages is that there's, it's, there's a lot of things that can hold up this process, you know, of the judges on vacation. You know, if you're in a county where the one judge or does this, that's what he or she does. Um, or if we can't get enough sheriffs. I mean, there's a lot of things that cause this thing to be delayed. Now, so it can, t- so from a lender's perspective, the, the problem with it is, is that it can take forever for them to finally be able to sell the property and get their money back. Okay. For whatever reason. So that's the advantage to the, that's the disadvantage to the lender. But that then becomes an advantage to the borrower of the property because that, in some cases, may give them a little bit more time to make the mortgage good and start making payments again. So it gives them a little bit more time. So while on one hand it might be a disadvantage to one party, it can be an advantage to the other one. Also, on redemption, you know, under a deed of trust, when you foreclose on a deed of trust, that's it. It's done. You know, you don't have that ability to redeem it back. Okay, but under a mortgage, there is. So any, at any time until the sheriff's sale, the debtor may save the property by paying the mortgagee what is due. This is a right to, uh, to save or redeem the property before the sale is called equitable right of redemption. Okay, so you can do that under a, de- under a, um, under a mortgage. Um, uh, let me go here for a minute. And it says post-sale redemption. So we have that right of redemption before, but now under a mortgage, we also have a post-sale redemption. So it says after the sale, the debtor has another opportunity to save or redeem the property. The debtor can do this by paying the purchaser the amount paid for the property plus accrued interest from the time of the sale. That means the the person that defaulted on the loan goes back to the person that bought the property and says, I want to buy that property from you that you bought at the foreclosure sale. That's what we're talking about. This right to redeem the property following the sheriff's sale is called a statutory right of redemption. And typically that lasts for a year. Okay? So in other words, that's another right that you have under the foreclosure of a mortgage that you don't have under a deed of trust. And sometimes people will say, well, why would somebody go for that length of period of time? You know, there could be a reason. Most of us, most of the time, when we borrow money, have full intention of paying it back. What ends up happening is some sort of a calamity or a problem happens in our life. Somebody dies, somebody gets sick, somebody loses a job. Especially today, in in the world today, a lot of people are needing both the husband and the wife's income in order to qualify to buy the property. And so what ends up happening is you may very well have where the husband works for the state of California, has this very secure job, and the wife works for some company, and the company goes out of business, or she gets laid off. And the next thing you know, here goes half the income. And especially today, a lot of women, in in many, many cases, make as much, if not more, than the men do. You know, you may find out that it's the wife who actually has makes more money, and her job is critical. If they lose her job they are going to have some serious problems because she makes quite a bit of the money. And that's not uncommon today. So because of that, you may have where you go into foreclosure, and it may take a while for you to, for example, find another job, or it might be because you're sick, and it's going to take you a while to recover. So that's why, but on the other hand, you don't want to lose the house. It might be a house that was been in the family for years and years, and you don't want to lose that. 
Okay, that's the reason why. Anyway, so we talked about that. Um, down here, if the pro down here they talk now. The last thing in here is is the deficiency judgment. So it says if the property does not bring enough money at the sale to pay off the mortgage, the debtor ha may be able to obtain a deficiency judgment against the debtor. What that means is that if they can't sell it for enough money to pay everybody off, that the lender can go and get a deficiency judgment. Now, the, the thing that you have to think about during that period of time is, is that they can get a deficiency judgment, but maybe if the person, you know, let's say, for example, that they've, the reason why they're defaulting is because they've lost their job or they've lost, you know, they've, they've gotten so sick they can't work anymore, there may be nothing to go after. <laughs> you can sue the people, you can go after them, but they're, you know, you can't get blood out of a stone. You know, if they don't have any money left, you know, typically if people become extremely ill or sick or disabled, they may actually not only let the property go into foreclosure, but have to move back in with other family members, you know, their children or their parents or something like that. So there may be no money left to go after, you know. If they do, they may very well try to do something like attach wages, okay. So that's the, the dangerous side of this mortgage business here. Uh, it says here, it says, to obtain a deficiency judgment, the creditor must apply to the court within three months of the judicial sale to do that. And again, this is stuff that you always want to make sure, you know, how, if the laws change. Um, okay. And I think uh, that's it as far as that part goes. Now, uh, so we talked then about the advantages and the disadvantages of, if you will, of, of mortgages versus trustees. Uh, trustees, again, very quick, very easy to follow. Uh, law is all set out. You follow the law, bang, you sell the property, and you're done with it. A mortgage, on the other hand, you have to go through judicial foreclosure, meaning you have more cost, more time delay, not very clear-cut path to follow. Um, okay. Now, the, the other thing I want to do here now is talk about something called real estate contracts. So we have talked about, you know, from a security standpoint, we have talked about a mortgage. We have talked about a deed of trust. There is one other security device that we use, and we do use this in California. We do use this in California, and I'm going to show you typically where it is. We use it typically in something called CalVet loans. So I'm going to read to you what this is, and then we'll go ahead and I'll show you where it is on their website. Okay. Okay. Real estate contracts are also called contracts for sale. You'll hear it again, do different ways. Installment sales contracts, conditional sales contracts, and land contracts. So they have a lot of different names. The biggest major thing in a land contract is this, in any of these contracts. It essentially says that when I sell the property to you, I'm going to give you the right to live in the property, to enjoy it, but I'm not going to give you legal title. I'm going to hold legal title, and I'm going to continue to hold legal title until some particular predetermined condition comes up. For example, I could say to you, I am not going to grant you legal title until you completely pay off me pay the loan off. Then I will give you a grant deed and deed the property over to you. I could also say to you, for example, listen, we're going to enter into this contract and you're going to go ahead and make me monthly payments. And after you've done this for, say, three years, then I'll give you title to the property. So that it could be based on some kind of a condition. 
you know, after three, three years of successful monthly payments, I'm going to give you title to the property. So keep in mind that's why we have these other terms, but essentially it means that the, you're not, you're going to, you're buying the property, you can live and enjoy it, but you don't have legal title to it. Okay? Uh, down below, it talks about the parts to this. It says that real estate contracts differ significantly from mortgages and deeds of trust. Under both a mortgage and a deed of trust, security arrangements, uh, security arrangements, the debtor acquires title to the property. Okay. Uh, under a real estate contract, the seller, who's called the vendor, retains legal title until the buyer, the vendee, pays the entire contract. During the period, uh, during during the period, the purchaser is paying on the contract, which may be many years. The purchaser has the right to possess and enjoy the property, but is not the legal owner. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to show you at the um, Calvet website where you're going to run into this. And the reason why I'm picking Calvet is because it just uh, it just it's just a way I can show you something taking you to uh, your Blackboard website for the class. I'm going to go down here, and I'm going to go to Website Links. And I'm going to go to this particular chapter we're talking about here, which is Financial Instruments. And I'm going to open this up, and I have right here CalVet Frequently Asked Questions. The reason why I picked the CalVet Frequently Asked Questions is because that's where it's discussed. Okay. Uh, again, this is a California state website so the navigation works predominantly the same as the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Department of Real Estate. They all pretty much work the same. Uh, the frequently asked questions is right over here on the left hand side. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of zoom this up a little bit so we can see this a little bit better. And I think I can maybe go one more notch to make it a little bit larger. Okay. So these are the CalVet Frequently Asked Questions. And if you go all the way down here, and it takes me a minute to find it, it gives you all the information you would need to know about getting a CalVet loan, like who can apply, how to apply. Uh, talks about documents you'd need to have, such as your DD-214, which is your discharge uh, certificate, if you will. And when you get all the way down here, and I am keep going all the way down until uh, I find it here. Okay. How are CalVet loans different from other home financing? That's where you're going to see this. And I'm going to read quite a bit of it, and then I'm going to point out where it specifically says this so that you'll see it. And hopefully you'll be able to see this uh, between me talking and looking at the TV. It says, there are some basic differences between the CalVet home loans and other financing you might choose. The state of California has chosen to provide CalVet home loans as a benefit to veterans who want to live in our state. That's important because they're giving the loan to people that are living in the state, not people that are CalVets but live in another state, Okay, say like the VA does. Because it is a veteran's benefits, we make every effort to make the loan available to all veterans. We qualify you for the loan using the same criteria as other lenders, but because we are a direct lender, they directly lend the money to you, okay? And we service the loans we make. We are able to give every veteran extra consideration, and if, if we can qualify you for a loan, 
you can get the same rate as everyone else. We will not classify you as higher risk or increase your interest rate, okay? This is the part right here where it talks about how the, the CalVet uh, or the land contract works. This is CalVet uses a contract of sale as the financing instrument for the loans. What that means is that CalVet purchases the home you selected and takes legal title to the property at the close of escrow uh, and then sells the property to you using a contract of sale. When the loan is paid in full, uh, either when the last payment is, is made or you refinance or sell, we issue a grant deed to transfer a legal title to you. Uh, a document called the Memorandum of Agreement of Sale is recorded to show that the contract exists and you hold what is referred to as equitable title in the property, which gives you all the rights of ownership. Okay. One of the major advantages of the contract of sale is that CalVet is able to obtain fire and hazard insurance and disaster insurance and provide superior insurance coverage at group rates. Uh, I don't know how technically true that is because I haven't compared the two of them, but apparently because they can get the, the insurance at a group rate, they can get it cheaper. Uh, uh, the technicality of holding legal title also assists us in obtaining the best possible bond ratings for bonds that we sell to finance the program. Now, you actually, when you go to the polls and vote, what will happen is you will see if they're going to have a bond issue to raise money, it'll be it'll have some statement on there that CalVet's going to have a bond issue. There's no financial impact to you as a voter. It's to raise money from the public in order to pay for the program. Okay, so they raise the money to lend and they raise the money to run the program. Okay, for, every, for a very small number of veterans who dealt with the CalVet home loan, the contract of sale makes it easier for us to recover the property and minimize the losses of the program. Okay. So that's a place where you will see that. Now, the, the, here, the, the, the issue with the, with the CalVet loan and just like FHA and VA, more of the conventional financing has become, you know, we have more conventional financing now that does things such as offer, uh, you know, no money down or low down or so on and so forth on the property. So consequently, what ends up happening is, is that some of these government programs are not as popular as they were in the past. But the point is that, uh, you know, the, uh, the CalVet program is there. That's how they, can t how they handle the security of the loan. And it's a good way of me showing you that this, this kind of a contract actually does exist. It's not something that we're kind of reading about and making up, and, uh, uh, but really nobody ever uses it kind of a thing. Now, what I want to do is in the last few minutes, I want to talk about some additional clauses that you're going to find in what we call the security instruments, meaning that you're going to find these are probably in one form or another going to apply to whether it's a mortgage, a deed of trust, or a land contract. Okay, you're going to have some, some form of these kinds of things. The first one is called an acceleration clause. An acceleration clause is going to be in the contract. Essentially what it does is it allows the lender to say to the person that's borrowing the money, something has happened. You have not been making your payments on time, and therefore I want to accelerate the loan, and I want to get the completely paid off right now. The language that you will see in this contract, and I'll blow this up a little bit, will be something like this. Notice I said something. 
like this. doesn't mean that every one is going to be the same. It's going to have some language like this. So it'll say something like, in the case of a mortgage or a trust deal, shall fail to pay any installment of the principal or interest secured herein within due to keep or perform any covenant or agreement aforesaid, then the whole indebtedness thereby secured shall forthwith become due and payable at the election of the mortgagee or the beneficiary. Meaning if you don't make the payments or you violate some other part of the contract, the lender can call the loan and say, I want it all paid right now. It's called an acceleration clause. Like driving a car, you step on the accelerator. The next thing that you're going to have on these loans is something typically referred to as a prepayment clause. Prepayment clause is where you are getting a loan and where the lender has the right to to charge you a fee if you happen to pay the loan off sooner than originally agreed to. So as an example, you may very well get a loan. It might be for 30 years. That was your agreement. You turn around, live in the house for a year or two years, okay, and all of a sudden you decide you're going to sell it and you're going to, the new person that's buying it's going to get a loan and pay off your existing loan. This is where the lender has the ability to go ahead and collect a fee for that. And you may say, why would they want to do that? That sounds stupid. You know, uh, you know, I'm going to pay them off sooner. Well, when you really think about it, when the lender makes that loan, maybe they have a very favorable interest rate coming in from you. And what ends up happening is when you pay that loan off, now they've got to turn around and take that money that they receive from you and turn around and lend it back out again, and they may not get the same deal. So they may very well say, you know what, in that particular case, what we want to do is we want to charge you a fee because we're going to have to go through, we lend the money out, we're not going to get as high of an interest rate as we were going to get from you, so we want to charge you a fee, a prepayment penalty for that. A couple things to notice is it says many conventional loans have prepayment provisions. They are prohibited by FHA and VA loans. Uh, while the same time periods and the amount of payment vary considerably, the basic effect of the prepayment provision is to charge the debtor for paying off the loan too early and depriving the lender from receiving anticipated interest. Um, and they go through here and they say, as an example, uh, might be a provision which charges the debtor 3% of the original loan amount uh, if more than 20% of the principal is repaid in one year. So typically what ends up happening is, is that that's how they do it. They'll say something like, okay, you borrowed $100,000, you can pay up to $20,000. If you pay more than $20,000, then we're going to go ahead and initiate this prepayment penalty. Okay? So again, they give you a statement down here where it says this is the kind of language you would be looking for if within five years from the date of this note, the borrower makes any prepayments of principal in excess of 20% of the original. Okay, then it goes on from there. It says principal amount in 12 monthly period beginning at the default date, wait a minute, of the default date of the note or anniversary dates thereof, loan year shall pay the note holder 3% of the original amount of the note. So you'll have some language like that, some language. The next thing is called an alienation clause. Again, you're going to have some kind of a statement in there. The whole purpose of an alienation clause, and I've said this so many times, again, I sound like a broken record, but the purpose of this is that the lender, when they make the loan to you, have sat down and looked at the property, at that appraisal, and looked at you as a borrower. 
if you turn around and can just turn around and freely transfer that property from you to another one and let somebody else take over the existing financing, the lender may very well end up with the new person that's not going to make the monthly payments. You know, they, they've looked at this. They've decided they're going to give you this interest rate uh, based on your based on your credit because maybe you have a great credit rating. They're looking completely at you. Then you turn around and sell it to somebody else, and maybe they're not making monthly payments. Now the lender's stuck having to having a cost they didn't think they were going to have. What they're doing is they're saying, listen, if you're getting ready to sell the property, we, we, the lender, wants to have the option to take a look at that new borrower and if and we'll make the decision on whether or not we'll allow somebody to assume that loan. Okay? Very, very important. Um, let me go on from there. Okay. A couple other things in here that I want to mention to you. Uh, and there is quite a bit, by the way, on that alienation clause. Uh, back in the early um, 70s and 70s and 80s, actually up into the latter part of the 70s, getting into the 80s, a lot of people, especially when the interest rates were very high, it was very difficult to get financing. What ended up happening is a lot of people would assume the existing financing. Lenders turned around and said, that's not really a good deal for us. We've got somebody else. When we really lend that money to you, even so we told you for 30 years, we really are looking at the fact that we really thought you'd pay it back in about 7 or 10. Now you're going to pass that low interest rate loan off to somebody else, and we're having to pay a higher rate of interest in order to attract uh, depositors. So they want to stop that from happening. So there's a lot of legislation that was involved in preventing that from happening. Okay, And it's in the book. Okay, subordination clause. Subordination clause is basically, it says, generally the, prior, uh, the priority of among mortgages, deeds of trust, and real estate contracts is determined by the date of recording, the first recorded instrument being the first priority. What they do is they give you an example down here, but let me see if I can give you my own example. A good example of this would be if I happen to have a subdivision of lots, bare lots, buildable bare lots. Many, many times it can be very difficult to turn around and sell those lots and ask a person to go ahead out and get an 80 or 90% loan for the lot. And the reason why is because of the fact that the lot doesn't generate any income. It's just kind of like a black hole that you just keep putting property taxes down and you know maintenance on the lot or whatever. So what's ended up happening is many times when people sell land, whether it's an individual or it's a company, they either sell it all for cash or the owner usually agrees to take back a loan. So they may say, okay, I'll sell you the lot, 10% down, it's a $100,000 lot, 10% down, give me $10,000 down, I'll carry a loan for $90,000, make monthly payments to me for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Now, typically, when that lot is sold, the intention of the person that's buying it is to build a house. And you know as well as I do that you're not going to get a lender to lend money on a construction loan to build this new house if it already has a loan against the lot. So what will end up happening is when the loan is originally made by that lender, they will have something either in the contract called the subordination clause. And essentially what that is is where the person that's making that loan agrees ahead of time to make their loan a junior loan to a new loan, which is typically a construction loan, which now makes it so that if you borrow the money to build a house from, say, the bank, 
It puts the bank in the first position. It puts the lot, the land lot, or the owner that sold the property in second position, meaning in the event of a foreclosure, the bank gets paid first, then the other guy gets paid. And typically, there's language in there that's very specific, like, you know, the, the, the person that lent the owner did not just say, oh, I'll just agree to anything. Usually, it's to a construction loan for a specific period of time to a certain amount of uh, or value of the construction loan. What ends up happening is once the house is built and paid off, the, new, the owner gets a brand-new loan called a takeout loan or a long-term loan, whatever you want to call it, and pays off the construction loan and pays off that original loan that they had on the lot from the seller of the property. Usually those subordination agreements, maybe you're agreeing to do those things for maybe 6, 9, 10, 12 months, something during the phase of the building of the house. All right. And the last thing they talk about in here that I can see is something called a release or a partial release. And essentially what a partial release is is that when you have pledged more than one property for a loan, and the example they use in this particular situation is where they're talking about land. But, for example, I could have where I borrowed some money. What I did is that when I borrowed the money, I pledged, say, maybe five lots, five individual lots is what I pledged. What happens is, is my intention is, is that what I'm going to do is that I'm going to take those lots when I borrowed the money and I'm going to build a house on them. As I build the house, I have a brand-new buyer that comes in and buys that house on that lot. And what a partial release is is where I go back to the original lender and I say, excuse me, I have sold one of the lots you know, with the house on it, and what I'd like to have you do is to reconvey that one lot to me so I can grant clear title to the new buyer. So then what ends up happening, the concept is as time goes by, you start out with five lots, you build a house, you sell it, now you've got four lots. You build a house, sell it, now you've got three. You build a house, two, then one, and then the whole thing, the whole thing is paid off. That's the whole idea of the, of the partial release. It's used a lot in, um, you see it a lot in building subdivisions. You know, where, where the, as the houses are built and they're sold, there, you need to have some kind of a release. Uh, so that you can, the new person buying can get a brand new loan on the house. Okay. So with that, I think we pretty much covered the financial instruments, uh, beat them kind of to death. A very important topic. Uh, sometimes very misunderstood. I would recommend that you spend some time going on those websites or that website that I showed you to take a look at it. The next time we meet, we're going to be going over something called the loan process. In other words, how is a loan process so you're able to understand how that operates. And with that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here again for show number 15. Have a nice day.